We have an extra special blessing because we have a guest speaker who's flown a long way. Uh, he's, he's done some other things during his trip, but among those things is just being, having been a blessing to the CCF congregation, obviously not just to the folks who are here in the hall, but even those who listened online and even those who will view the DVDs in weeks and months and years to come. Our, our guest speaker this evening is Pastor Charles Price, the senior pastor of People's Church in Toronto, Canada. He's been the senior pastor for a number of years since uh, 2001. He also has uh, an hourly, an hour-long weekly television program called The Living Truth, and his program is broadcast in Canada, the U.S., Europe, Asia, Australia, and South America. So the Lord's word through him reaches a long, long way. Among many of his, uh, I guess, accomplishments in life is the fact that he was on staff at the Cape Ray Hall in England for many years including being the principal of Cape and Ray Bible School. And it was during this time when Pastor Charles also was in an itinerant ministry of evangelism and Bible teaching. And throughout this time, he actually got to preach in more than 80, 80 countries. He's been married to Hillary since 1980. They're blessed with three grown children, Hannah, Laura, and Matthew. But above everything else, Based on what I have come to know about this man in the brief time we've spent together and the message that he has allowed the Lord to speak through him in five services so far. Talk about the Holy Spirit's power working in people. Well, yeah, you can give the Lord a clap offering. Certainly, he deserves more than what we can give. I believe that inside this man beats a heart of simple, sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. And I mentioned that a while ago we had a, a disturbing power outage. Uh, and I, I, I think there's an object lesson in that. Many of us, we experience a power outage in our lives, in our hearts, in our emotions, in our spirits. And if you're like me and you've experienced that, this message this evening is for you. So let's lift up to the Lord in prayer, His servant, our speaker, Pastor Charles Price. Father God in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity to listen to your word tonight. Thank you for securing this time and this place. And in spite of the incident a while ago, thank you for keeping it cool and safe and comfortable for the people who are now here. And Lord, we trust that indeed you are sovereign over all things, people, and situations. And this situation is no different. And as we entrust ourselves to your sovereign care, we ask that once more you will fill your servant, Pastor Charles Price, with your Holy Spirit so that the words he will speak will be no more and no less than exactly those which you want us to hear. And for ourselves, we ask for your grace and for your power to apply these diligently, joyfully, and consistently in our lives. We commit ourselves and this time to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all your people said, Amen and amen. Please welcome Pastor Charles Price. Well, thank you, Pastor Ricky, very much indeed. And uh, I'm glad this is the last service. And uh, every service gets better looking. And uh, you've kept the cream to the end. So it's wonderful to see you this evening. And it's been a great privilege to be here at CCF. I've known of this church for just a couple of years. And when I announced last Sunday morning in Toronto that I would be here this Sunday, 
a number of uh, members of our congregation who are Filipino, because Filipinos are all over the world. Everywhere I go, they're Filipinos. I wondered if there'd be any left in Manila when I came here. But uh, people said, oh, that's my church, or that's where my in-laws go, or that's where my friends go. And every service, the previous five services, there have been people who come to see me and say, do you know so-and-so, do you know so-and-so? So there are much stronger connections than I'd realized between the People's Church and CCF. But there are a number of reasons why it's a privilege to be here, not least because I think God is doing some wonderful things in this continent of Asia. I think the 21st century will be Asia's century in many respects, but not least in the leadership of the global church. God is raising up remarkable churches and leaders and people like Edmund Chan, who we saw on the screen a few moments ago, announcing the Global Discipleship Congress. Does a wonderful work there in Singapore, Daniel Toh in Kuala Lumpur, uh, Peter Tanchi here in this city, and uh, other parts of Asia where remarkable work is taking place. And it's a, it's a thrill to see it and to observe what God is doing. And so all the privilege has been mine in being here today. I'm going to read to you some verses from the book of Acts in chapter 1. At the moment, you are in this church going to be going through and have begun to go through this book of Acts, this remarkable record of just 30 years from the ascension of Jesus, one generation we're beginning with just a handful of people in the city of Jerusalem, 120 people waiting for Pentecost. By the end of the book, we've gone to the very heart of the Roman Empire, Rome itself, the greatest empire in history up until then. And along the way, thousands of people have come to Christ. The reputation has been obtained that these men have turned the world upside down. And it is to our tremendous benefit that we look into this book of Acts. And in particular, not so much to learn the techniques of the men and women God was using, but to see the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of men and women, and how he was the one who was taking the gospel into people's lives and transforming people's lives, because the story of the book of Acts is continuing right through until the 21st century. But I want to read verse 6 to verse 9 of chapter 1, just four verses. It says, so when they met together, they, that is the disciples, asked him, that is Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, mind your own business. But this is your business, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. 
When I was a boy, my parents had a book at home that was entitled The Famous Last Words of 5,000 People. And it was a kind of book you picked up and browsed. And some people, knowing they were going to die, lay down and made a very profound little speech and then closed their eyes and died. One famous last word was just one word, I remember. It was spelt with a capital A, about six H's, about six full stops, and about six exclamation marks. Ah! And I've forgotten what happened to him, but that was his famous last word. One interesting one was somebody who said, I can assure you we are absolutely safe. It doesn't tell you what happened next, but that was his famous last word. Do you know what the famous last words of Jesus Christ are? We just read them together. And I imagine that Jesus had thought about these words, that what he would say in that, those moments before he would be ascended, that he would leave deliberately ringing in the ears of his disciples, passed on to the next generation of believers, passed on to the next generation after that, and, they were, and it was this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And before he could say any questions, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. We need to understand what Jesus was talking about in these famous last words. He talked about three things. He talked about power, first of all. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, of course, the big question is, what kind of power is he talking about? Twice after his resurrection and before his ascension, Jesus talked about power. And both times he used a different word. The word he used here is the Greek word dunamis. And you'll recognize that that sounds like some English words like dynamic, dynamite, dynamism, which in fact is power in the sense of sheer energy and force. And if anybody needed power, it was these 11 men. This conversation took place on the day of Jesus' ascension, which was a Thursday, 40 days after his resurrection. Six weeks before, on another Thursday, the night before his crucifixion, these disciples had had their weaknesses mercilessly exposed to them. You remember that Jesus met with them to celebrate the Passover? The disciples hadn't understood anything more was going on than just celebrating the Passover, but Jesus knew more than they did. And at the end of the meal, you remember, he took some bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. 
eat this in remembrance of me, and he passed it around the room, and then he took a glass of wine and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Drink this in remembrance of me, and passed it around. In other words, he was saying that my body is going to be broken and my blood is going to be shed. And do you know what happened next? Luke tells us that a dispute arose amongst the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Can you believe that? They started arguing, which is the greatest? And you can be pretty sure it wasn't Peter saying, well, you know, I think John is probably the greatest. After all, he's a disciple whom Jesus loves. And John's saying, oh, thank you very much. That's very nice of you. No, no, I think, I think James is probably the greatest. Oh, no, 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 no. I think it's uh, Thomas. He's probably the greatest. And Thomas saying, oh, thank you very much for saying that. I think it's Thaddeus because the last will be first and nobody's ever heard of him. No, that wasn't the argument. The argument was Peter saying, what do you mean, who's the greatest? We know fine well who is the greatest. It's me. And John's saying, you're just a loudmouth. I mean, who's the disciple whom Jesus loves, huh? And Andrew's saying, yeah, but who wrote that? You wrote that in John's gospel. Nobody else wrote that. You just made that up. And they were disputing like this as to who was the greatest. And in the midst of the dispute, though it is Luke who tells us about the dispute between them, but in Matthew's gospel, it tells us that Jesus said to them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. You discussing who's the greatest? Let me tell you some home truths about each of you men. This night, tonight, all of you will fall away. And Peter was indignant. Peter said, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. In other words, Jesus, excuse me, pardon me saying this, but you made a mistake then. You forgot about me. I mean, Andrew, he's my brother. Yeah, I know, he's weak, he might go. Thomas, James the Lesser, yeah, he'll probably go. But I never will. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times, Peter, before the sun comes up in the morning, and the rooster welcomes the dawn of the new day, you will have denied me three times, and Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Jesus, you do not know me as well as you think you do. If they have to put four crosses on that hill and put me on the fourth, don't worry, I'll be there. If I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And it says, and all the other disciples said the same. So John said, me too, I'll die. James said, and me. Andrew, and me. And Thaddeus, me too. (laughs) 
Do you think they were play acting? No, I don't think so. I think these men loved Jesus. They'd spent three years with Jesus. They were totally committed to Jesus, to what they understood of Jesus. They said, no, we'll stick with you. Of course, they didn't understand what was going to happen. But they said, they were serious. I have no doubt about that. And then Jesus took three of them, Peter, James, and John, down to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said, just stay awake. And they didn't. They fell asleep. And then he was arrested by some Roman soldiers. Judas, one of the disciples, had left the Last Supper early to go and inform as to where they would find Jesus. And Jesus was taken away by some Roman soldiers, and Peter followed at a distance, it says. And as he was following at a distance, somebody came by and said, aren't you one of his disciples? Beg your pardon? Aren't you one of his disciples? One of whose disciples? That man they just arrested. Who they just arrested? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of where? Of Nazareth. No, I don't know him. I, I thought I saw you with him. No, no, it must have been somebody who looks like me. It wasn't me. I don't know him. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Phew. I got away with that. And then somebody else came by and said, you've got a Galilean accent. Aren't you one of his disciples? Well, funny you should say that. Somebody else just asked me that. No, I don't know him. Never seen him before. Phew, I got away with that. Then a girl came by, a young girl came by and said, I know you, I've seen you before, you're one of his disciples. And I can't tell you what Peter said because the Bible censors it, censors it, because what it does say is that he cursed and he swore and he denied any knowledge of Christ. In other words, said Peter, I don't know who that man is. I don't blankety, 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 blank, blank know who he is. He cursed. And suddenly, and Peter broke down and wept bitterly. Listen, if anybody needed power, it was these men. And I have no doubt this evening there are men and women in this room tonight and you need power because you know the brokenness of your own life. You know the weakness of your own life. You know the times you've committed yourself. I am going to change. I'm going to be different. And you're not. It may be that you're a Christian and you know that your sins have been forgiven, but you've been simply trying to make your Christian life work by your own disciplined activity and it's not working. There may be those of you here and you're not yet a Christian and I'm so very glad that you're here. You may be here out of curiosity. You might have come with a friend. You might have come 
with a wife or with your husband, but you know, you know the things that defeat you, you know the things that you battle with, and you come away defeated again and again. You know, sometimes our defeat, our failures become our best friends because they make us aware that I do not have in myself what I need. And once we become honest about that, we're on the threshold of a very wonderful discovery. And the message of Jesus to these men with that history is you will receive power. It wasn't just Peter. They all forsook him and fled. John was the last one to stay at the cross, but he left as well. Do you know, not one of the disciples of Jesus attended his funeral. Have you ever noticed that? Only four people went to Jesus' funeral. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of Joseph. They're the only ones who went to his funeral. Where were the 12 disciples? Well, one had committed suicide, Judas Iscariot. The other 11 were behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. If anybody needed power, it was these men. But I said just now that Jesus used two words for power after his resurrection and before his ascension. And the other occasion was in Matthew 28 and verse 18, where it says, Jesus came and spoke unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I'm quoting there from the King James Version, which uses the word power, but it's a different word to the word power in Acts 1 verse 8. The word he uses here is the word exousia. And that means power in the sense of authority. And some translations translated straight as authority. It's the kind of power a policeman has when he puts his uniform on and he can walk out into the middle of the street, hold up his hand and all the traffic stops. He has authority. If I walk into the street and hold up my hand, I'll, I'll get run down. Because it is authority invested in the policeman's uniform, in his position. Now, he may not have power in himself. He may take his uniform off and go home <clears throat> at night and his wife boss him around and push him around and he's feeble. But this is power in the sense of authority. So Jesus said two things about power. All authority, exousia, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now it's important we understand that he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. But that is not enough for us to know. All authority has been given to me, but you will receive 
dynamis, dynamic power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we need to understand the relationship between authority and power, dynamic power. You see, authority without power is pathetic. I come originally from England, though I'm living in Canada now, and uh, the highest authority in Great Britain is Queen Elizabeth II. And Queen Elizabeth has a grandson called William who married a girl called Kate, who everybody thinks is cute, so everybody knows about William and Kate, including Filipinos. Well, the Queen is the highest authority in the land. We have a parliament, and they meet, and they debate, and they discuss, but it means nothing until the Queen takes out her pen and she signs the bill into law. She is the highest authority in Great Britain. But supposing I met the queen on the street, which is highly unlikely, and supposing I didn't respect her, which I do, and I saw her on the street and I said, hi, Lizzie, and she turned to look at me, and supposing I was rude, and so I said, People don't do that to queens, so she might say what queens say, off with his head. That's what they used to say in history. I might say, okay, come and get it. And if she came to attack me, I hope I could beat her because she's 86 years of age and she's a woman. Because although she has the highest authority in the land, she doesn't have much personal dynamism. That's why she has bodyguards around her because she doesn't have it. She needs somebody else to help her. So authority without dynamism can be a bit pathetic. On the other hand, dynamism, dynamic power without authority is dangerous. Look at Al-Qaeda. No constitutional authority causing havoc all over the world. Look at Abu Sayyaf. No authority, but dangerous because they have dynamic power. What is needed is authority that has the dynamism with it to implement the authority and to make it work. Some years ago, I was traveling on a bus. It's a long distance journey and there was a man on the bus who was drunk and he was a nuisance and he started singing and everybody was a bit uncomfortable and some people went to the driver and said, this isn't good, get the man off the bus. And eventually the driver pulled over onto the side of the road, got out of his seat, walked up the aisle, and said to the man, you're drunk, you're not traveling anymore on this bus, you're disturbing everybody, get off and travel when you're sober. And the man sat there, folded his arms, and looked out of the window while the driver was standing this side and totally ignored him. So the driver said, sir, I'm talking to you. You're not traveling like this, get off my bus and travel when you're sober. And the man just looked out to the window and totally ignored him. The driver put his hand on the man's shoulder and said, I'm asking you to get off my bus. And the man sat there with his arms folded and then shrugged his shoulder and the driver's hand limply fell off. And the rest of us on the bus were sitting there wondering what's gonna happen next and none of us did anything to help. <laughs> And eventually, the driver went back to his seat, started the engine, got back onto the road, and this man began to sing even louder. After a short while, he pulled off 
the main road into a town, and he pulled up outside a building and stopped. And on the building were two words, police station. He went in, the driver went in, came back out a few minutes later with two very big looking policemen who walked onto the bus and said, which is he? And the driver said, this man over here. So the policeman, the first police went up and said, would you get off the bus? And the man just sat there and looked out of the window. The policeman said, you're not traveling on this bus. I'm giving you one opportunity. Get off the bus now. And the man just looked out of the window. The policeman put his hand onto the man's shoulder. His fingers seemed to sink into his shoulder. He yanked him to his feet, swung him around. The other policeman got the other side. The last we saw was him going to the police station like this. Now, the driver had all the authority to say, get off the bus, but he had no dynamic to make it happen. The police had the authority to tell him what to do and the dynamism to make sure it happened. Now, listen, Jesus said, you disciples need to understand something absolutely vital. All authority belongs to me. I have the right to tell you what to do. All authority in heaven and all authority on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's your instruction. And I'm going to leave you to think about that for a few days because that was up in Galilee. And no doubt, during those few days, these disciples said, hey, we've got to go and make disciples of all nations. Man alive, how are we going to do that? We're, we're, we're a pretty pathetic bunch, you know. We, we've got lots of, man, we, we couldn't do it before. How are we going to do that? And then on the Mount of Olives, just before he ascended, Oh, by the way, here's my last word to you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And before they could ask any questions, he was lifted up from the earth and hidden by a cloud with a message left ringing in their ears, you will receive power, you will receive power, you will receive power, you will receive power. What is that power for? To implement what Jesus in his authority has told us what to do. That's why we must never separate the Lordship of Christ from the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. If ever we talk about the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that is separate from the Lordship of Christ, we're asking for something that's not going to be biblical. And so you will receive power. And this power will enable you to fulfill and implement what the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord, as King of Kings, will tell you what to do. An important verse in my life is 1 Thessalonians 3, uh, 4, 24. He who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Not he who calls you is faithful, so you be faithful and do it, but he who calls you is faithful, he will do it. The one who calls you as your Lord is the one who will do it by his indwelling Holy Spirit in your life.
And so when you read in the book of Acts, from chapter two onwards, you discover a different group of disciples. Peter got up and preached on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 were converted. He and John went into the temple in Jerusalem in chapter three, and there was a man who had been crippled for years, and he asked them for money, and Peter said, I don't have any money, but what I have, I'll give you. What have you got? In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the man jumped to his feet, and he began to walk and run around, and a great crowd gathered, and they got all excited, and Peter said to this crowd, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? Don't look at me. I am not a miracle worker. I didn't do this. The God of, our fa- uh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified our servant Jesus, and he's saying this. I, I didn't do this. We didn't do this. This is what... God has done by the gift of his Holy Spirit in us. And when the local authorities got together later in that chapter, it says in verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. In other words, when they saw these men, and they had been living in Jerusalem for seven weeks, they came on what we call Palm Sunday. This is now, well, this is now about 12 weeks later, actually, by the time we get to here. They've seen these men for about three months. They knew them at their worst moment. They, all the rumors around Jerusalem about Jesus' disciples running away and hiding and scattering, one of them having committed suicide. And now they see these men, and suddenly they have courage. They didn't have courage before. They are bold. They weren't bold before. And they said, these are unschooled, ignorant men. In other words, they haven't been on a crash course on how to be strong. They're unschooled men. But they said, here's the only thing we can explain it by. They've been with Jesus. What we see in them is Jesus. And you know... That's the story God wants to write in your life and my life as well. That the explanation for our lives is not, well, he's a pretty good person, he's a pretty clever person, he's a very strong person. The explanation for our lives is this, you're a very ordinary person, but Jesus is doing something. By his Holy Spirit, he's giving power Do you know anything of that power? That was the first thing he talked about. The second thing he talked about was a purpose. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Notice he doesn't say, and you will do witnessing on a Friday night. Let's all meet at the church at seven o'clock. Well, that's okay, of course, but that isn't what he says here. He says, you will be my witnesses. You see, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, You no longer have the choice, am I going to be a witness or not? You have the choice, am I going to be a good witness or a bad witness? 
Am I going to be a true witness or a false witness? When I got married 32 years ago, I had a choice. And the choice I had to make was, do I want to be a husband or not? And I stood in front of a man who asked me the question, will you take this woman to be your lawf lawfully, no, he said awfully then, your lawfully wedded wife? And I said, I will. He asked her the same question about me, and she said, I will. And he said, I now pronounce you man and wife. And from that moment on, 32 years ago, I have never had the choice, do I want to be a husband or not? Because I am a husband. The choice I have to make is this, am I going to be a good husband or a bad husband? but a husband I am. And the moment you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, where he comes to live in you, your life either tells people Jesus Christ is worth knowing, or our lives tell people Jesus Christ is not really worth knowing because he's not making much change. And that's why coupled with you will receive power, when the Holy Spirit is at work in your life and you're living in dependence upon Him and you're trusting Him and you're asking Him to be your strength and your power, when that happens, the neighbors will notice. And you'll be a witness. If you're just religious, as far as your neighbors are concerned, your hobby is going to church their hobby is playing basketball. That's the only difference. But when the Holy Spirit comes to live in your life, there'll be evidence that something is different. When I came here this morning, at eight o'clock this morning, it was a joy to come into this building and meet a number of people who are here in preparation for the eight o'clock service and I could see in their faces, I could see in their eyes, I could see in their smiles that Jesus Christ lived in their hearts. They didn't have to tell me, I could see it. Now, as Paul said to the Corinthians, we are the aroma of Christ. That is, we smell of Christ. That's a crude way of putting it. We are the aroma of Christ to God. To one, we are the smell of life. To the other, the smell of death. There are those who will hate us because they smell the aroma of Christ in our lives and it convicts them and it condemns them. I travel all over the world and I love bumping into Christians who I never knew before and I immediately sense that belonging because you know Christ is there and Christ is resident in their lives. And you'll be a witness. Your life will portray Christ is what he says will happen. And the issue you have to face and I have to face every day 
Is this my witness going to be true? Is my witness going to be a reflection of the fact that Jesus Christ is alive in my heart and his Holy Spirit is adequate for all the issues I'm going to face today and am I going to live out of the power of his indwelling spirit? That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. That's never promised us in the Bible. It does mean that you can have confidence and trust and that God is going to be in business. I always look for the evidence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. When I'm dealing with them, I had a young man came to see me two Saturdays ago. I had not talked to him before. He's in his mid-twenties. He came to see me. And I said, tell me about yourself. And he told me that he was awaiting trial for armed robbery. He'd been involved in armed robbery before, but never been caught. He's a dangerous young man. But he said, when I was caught, and his trial is not going to be until the early part of 2014. It's more than a year away, his trial. There's a pre-trial in October this year. He said, I woke up with a shock to realize what I'd been doing. And I decided to come to church. And I picked the people's church just to come. I don't know, just to see if there's anything here that could help. And I've been coming now for a number of weeks. I said, is it making sense to you? He said, some of it is. He said, I go away trying hard to be a good person, which means he hasn't understood it, of course. Not yet. But he said, I have a strange request to make. First Sunday I was here, I sat down, I put my hand under my seat and I felt some chewing gum. He said, I realize that it's probably a lot of chewing gum all over this building. He said, could I come here one day and clean off all the chewing gum on all the seats in the auditorium? I said, why do you want to do that? He said, I suppose it's because I want to do something good. I've done so much that's bad. I want to do something good that nobody else really knows about. And I thought, if I came here during the day, I could clean up all this chewing gum. Now I know he was not trying to say, I want to do some good works to get right with God. But I recognized the Holy Spirit's fingerprint. Paul said in Ephesians, if you steal, steal no more and go and earn some money and give it away to those who are poor. In other words, do the opposite of your stealing. And I recognize, although he didn't, doesn't know this yet, the Holy Spirit is saying to him, I'm after you and I'm putting into your heart an appetite for something good. It's like Cornelius the Gentile first convert, God said, your, your works have come as a sweet-smelling savor. Your works don't save you. They will never save you. But I love your good works because they smell of something good going on in your heart. And you see, that is the evidence. And this young man is going to come to Christ. He hasn't yet. 
I was talking to him on email yesterday. He's not a Christian yet, but he's going to be because I can see how the Holy Spirit is at work in his life already. But you know, it was out of the despair of realizing the corruptness of his own heart and the danger and evil nature of what he'd been doing. He's discovered I need power. And the evidence of that power is you become a witness. Something happens in your life that begins to show the finger marks, the fingerprints of Jesus. And then Jesus talked about a third thing. He talked about power. He talked about a purpose. You'll be my witnesses. He talked about a process that they would follow. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I'm sure the disciples' hearts sank when he said, Jerusalem. Oh, no. That's where we've been for the last weeks, and we've made such a mess and such a failure. Why can't we go to somewhere where nobody knows me, and then I can be a good witness? Do you ever have that temptation? You know, the place where you and I will be our best witness is the place where people know us best because they know our failures, they know our sins sometimes, they know our battles, and they know and see where Jesus Christ has met us in those need. You see, I can come here to Manila today and stand up in front of you. You don't know anything about me at all. You don't know what battles I fight. You don't know what sins I have to literally wrestle to the ground. You don't know what temptations keep me awake at night in turmoil. You don't know the things that have happened in my life that have hurt me so deeply. But some people do. And it's those who know those battles, those who know those issues in my life, those who know those areas of brokenness who will see whether Jesus Christ is really in business or not. Your best area of witness will be the areas of your failure when in humility you go back and say, Jesus Christ is doing something in me. And if it's not true, they'll see nothing has happened. But if it's true, they'll see something has begun to happen. Go back to Jerusalem. This isn't where they lived. They were, they were the north. These disciples mostly came from places like Capernaum and Tiberias. But they were down in Jerusalem, have been here since Palm Sunday. And this is the place where they know you over these last weeks for your failure. You be a witness here in Jerusalem. And this is only my imagination, but I can imagine Jesus saying, Peter, do you remember that girl that you denied knowing me too? And you cursed and you swore, Peter, would you recognize her again? Would you go down into Jerusalem and find her? 
And will you seek her out and tell her you are one of my disciples? Will you apologize that you cursed and you swore to her? And will you tell her what it means to be my disciple? Peter, would you do that? John, you're the last to leave the cross. You were there when that centurion looked up and said, surely this was the Son of God. John, go down to the Roman barracks and find that centurion, would you? Would you tell him he was right? I am the Son of God. Tell him what that means. Tell him what I was doing on that cross. John, he'll recognize you because you were right there. James, would you make an appointment to visit the Sanhedrin Council? They're the ones who didn't have the authority to put me to death, but they recommended the Pontius Pilate, the Roman government, would put me to death. They orchestrated the whole thing. Would you, James, go and visit the Sanhedrin Council and tell them that they were working according to the foreordained plan of God but that I am not dead, I am alive again. Would you tell them that? Oh yes, they have the power to recommend you get killed too. So it'll take courage, but will you go and meet them? Matthew, you were a tax collector. You know the underworld here in Jerusalem you will know where Barabbas is likely to be hanging out. Do you remember what happened with Barabbas? You remember there were four criminals due to die, and Pontius Pilate wanted to offer a gesture to the Jews and said there are four criminals, there'll be only three crosses, one of the, one of the criminals will be set free. And he said, I'm going to invite the crowd to decide who'll be set free. You see, Pilate knew Jesus was an innocent man and he expected that Jesus would be set free. And he put up as a choice the worst of the criminals, Barabbas, and the best of the criminals, Jesus. They all knew Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer. He was a thief. When Barabbas was in town, people locked their doors. They didn't let their kids out on the street. They kept their women folk at home. This man was dangerous, and Pontius Pilate said, you can have this man, Barabbas, back on your streets at nine o'clock this morning. Or you can have this man on your streets at nine o'clock this morning, and they all knew Jesus. Nobody locked their doors because Jesus was around. Nobody kept their kids off the streets. They let the kids go and climb all over him, and they loved him, and he loved them. They didn't keep their women folks at home when Jesus was around because Jesus treated women with a dignity nobody else treated them with. They all knew Jesus. You can have this man back on your street at nine o'clock this morning. Which do you want released to you? Do you want Barabbas, or do you want Jesus, who is called the Christ? And Pilate fully expected them to say, release unto us Jesus. But instead they said, release to us Barabbas. And Pilate began to argue with the crowd, why, what has this man done? 
And they began to chant about this man, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Barabbas was released and went back into the crowd. And Jesus was crucified. Matthew, Matthew, you know the underworld in Jerusalem. Would you go and find Barabbas? And will you tell him I died twice for him? He knows about the first time. Tell him I was addressing the wrath of God on his sin. And he can be justified. Matthew, would you do that? Andrew, you saw the men playing with the dice at the foot of the cross, dividing my clothing as I hung there, humiliated, naked, dying, and they callously, with a dice, decided who'll get my clothing. Andrew, would you go down to the Roman camp and find those soldiers? You'll recognize them because they'll be wearing my clothes. One of them will have my robe on. You'll find somebody wearing my shoes. You'll find somebody with my cape. Will you go and find those men and say, when you were playing with your dice, did you notice what Jesus said from the cross? He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Will you tell them, I meant that? They're forgiven. Will you tell them their hearts can be clean? You see, this was their Jerusalem. I don't know what your Jerusalem might be. It might be your place of work. Or maybe things have gone wrong, and maybe you have acted in a way that is wrong. You need to go back and put it right and say, I want you to know Jesus Christ has changed my heart. Maybe in your home, maybe some of your husbands need to go home and sit down and look your wife in her eye and say, I'm sorry. I have not treated you in love. Some of us parents maybe need to go home and talk to our children. Maybe they're now our adult children and say, I want to be honest with you. I want to be humble before you and say, I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry about that because I want you to know that Jesus Christ has done a work in my heart and I want you to be the beneficiary of that. I want you to receive the benefit of what God has done in my life, in my Jerusalem. And then he said, Go to Judea. Judea was the province of which Jerusalem was the capital. Deliberately go out to look for people in order to be a witness of the gospel in Judea. And then into Samaria. Samaria was hostile territory. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They'd gone back for 700 years when the Assyrians had invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, taken most off to exile, left a few behind to till the ground and keep the place tidy, and left a few Assyrians to oversee them. 
and they married, intermarried with them, produced children who were not Assyrian and they were not Israelite and they called them Samaritans because Samaria was the capital city and they had been rejected ever since for 700 years. Jews had not talked to Samaritans. I want you Jewish men to go to Samaria. I want you to cross the cultural barrier I want you to cross the racial barriers. I want you to cross the political barriers. I want you to cross the sectarian barriers. And take the gospel into Samaria. You know, they didn't want to do that. In fact, they didn't do that. Have you ever compared Acts 1.8 with Acts 8.1? Acts 1.8, we've read it already tonight. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. That is very clear. And in Acts chapter 2, they received power, and they were witnesses in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 3, they were witnesses in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 4, they were witnesses in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 5, they're witnesses in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 6, they're witnesses in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 7, they're witnesses in Jerusalem. Something's not working. And months have gone by, and possibly years have gone by, and there's still witnesses in Jerusalem. Well, who wants to leave Jerusalem? Great things are happening there. 5,000 were converted in the first few days, and then there were being added daily people who are trusting the Lord. Who wants to leave Jerusalem? This is where the action is. You can hear Peter preaching on Sunday morning, John preaching on Sunday night, James leading the youth meeting. Uh, Mary Magdalene running the Sunday school, Mary the mother of Jesus leading the ladies' prayer meeting on a Tuesday afternoon, Nicodemus leading the Bible study on Wednesday night, Philip leading the outreach on Saturdays. I mean, this is the dream team. Who wants to leave Jerusalem? And then a young man in Jerusalem called Stephen who became a deacon, and then he became a fine preacher, and his preaching upset people, and they stoned him to death. And as his body lay crushed under the stoning, the middle of Acts 8 and verse 1 says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. The place they were told to go in Acts 1 verse 8. They didn't go till Acts 8 verse 1. And they went in Acts 8 verse 1 because they were driven by persecution. You know, the early church was a, a persecution-driven church. And sometimes, sometimes, God has to disturb our comfort in order to move us in the direction that he wants us to go. But he will do that. He will do that so that the witness went from Jerusalem and then out into Judea and then out into Samaria. And interestingly, the first revival outside of Jerusalem took place in Samaria amongst the most unlikely people they wouldn't have expected it to happen. 
but in Samaria, many came to Christ. And then finally, out to the ends of the earth. It doesn't mean that the more obedient you are, the further you will travel. This is a corporate for the whole church, that the whole church needs to have a global vision and be connected to the ends of the earth. If you take a map and you look at Jerusalem right in the middle, if you go west, the ends of the earth are in Chile. I think I was down in Chile a few months ago, and I said, at last I've reached the ends of the earth. If you go east, if you go west from Jerusalem, but if you go east from Jerusalem, the ends of the earth are probably the Philippines. <laughs> There's a few islands out beyond, <laughs> but we're meeting here tonight, and people have met here six times all day today. Why? Because this works. Because this life transformation, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you on the basis of the cleansing of the blood of Jesus. Our sin is removed, not just so that we are clean, but having cleaned out the junk, the Holy Spirit of God might then live the life of Jesus in us and make us witnesses as far as Chile and as far as the Philippines, the ends of the earth from Jerusalem. And if that was the word Jesus gave to his disciples, it's the word he still gives to his church. And the privilege that you and I have is not to read the book of Acts as a history, it is that, of course, but to see it as a commentary on the work of God through the ages, then and now. But we're only part of this story when we realize we need power. And God, in his grace and mercy, allows us into so often brokenness and failure so that we at last cry out and he meets us. And having met us and empowered us, our lives become a witness and our words and our works become an expression of what Jesus Christ is doing in us and our influence spreads Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's the story of the book of Acts. It's the story potentially of every one of our lives. As I finish, let me say this. If you don't know Christ for yourself, if you have no living personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then don't go home tonight that's simply bowing your head and saying, Lord Jesus, I realize my sin and my weakness and my failure. You died to forgive me. Please forgive me and come by your Holy Spirit to live the life of Jesus in me. And he will do that and you'll never be the same again. You need to tell somebody. We were told earlier there's a room you can go to if you're a visitor, but you can go there and find somebody and tell them. Tell a friend that you're with. 
They want to pray for you and help you and encourage you. But there are others of us, and we're more like the disciples. Yes, we are disciples. We're followers of Jesus, but we've been doing it in our own strength, and we constantly fail, and we need the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we need to cry out to God, Oh, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Cleanse me of all the sin and self-sufficiency. And fill me with the Holy Spirit. I live in dependence upon him that he in me might work in such a way that other people see Christ and are able to hear of him from my lips. And God will do that because he is far more interested in that than you and I will ever be. And the moment we say, Lord, please, I'm willing, He'll say, thank you, so am I. Let's go into business together. And like the book of Acts, the world was turned upside down. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful this evening that we're not part of a religion We're not part of just a lifestyle, but we've been invited into a relationship with God himself, whereby your Holy Spirit, you live in our hearts and you empower us in this fallen, broken world to be an exhibition of your presence, of your love, of your grace, of your power. I pray for those in this building tonight who came in here not knowing Christ as their Savior, Lord, bring them to yourself. Save them tonight, we pray. For those who've been living defeated Christian lives, operating in their own strength, or holding on to favorite secret sins, Lord, bring them to a point of repentance and turning from that and a full surrender that the Holy Spirit might exhibit his power in them. We pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's all sing our last song. Come on and stand up. together that because of the power of the spirit we can follow Jesus
Sunday, everyone. God bless you.